Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. We've seen a record number of acres of beautiful countryside go up in flames in 2020, and we're not done yet. In recent years, many across the West have seen some of the deadliest and most destructive wildfires that our country has ever experienced. Whether they've been accelerated by climate change or extreme drought conditions, there's no denying that millions of lives have changed forever as these millions of acres are scorched beyond repair. Today on the show, we're talking with someone who wants that trend to stop and wants to forecast the wildfires before they cause destruction. His name is Dr. Craig Clemens from the San Jose State University Fire Weather Research Lab in California, and we are so excited to sit down with him today. Craig, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, well this is awesome because we we both know a mutual colleague and Dr. Born, Bob Bornstein, who is, I know you said hired you and someone that I've worked with. So I just want to start the show off with a quick shout out to Bob. Let me, I'm going to give you a chance to think about this while I give your credentials, because I always ask each guest how they got into weather. So uh, before I ask you that question, Craig is a professor in the Department of Meteorology and Climate Science at San Jose State University and the director of the Fire Weather Research Lab. He got his BS in geography from the University of Nevada, Reno, and a master's degree in meteorology from the University of Utah, and then a PhD in, a PhD in geophysics from the University of Houston. So you cover the gamut, some of the same areas I cover. I have degrees in meteorology, but I'm housed in a geography department at Georgia. Uh, and I actually wanted to major in geophysics when I went to Florida State, so I resonate. Craig received the National Science Foundation's Career Award in 2012 and the San Jose State University Research Foundation Early Career Award, Investigator Award in 2010. So we're talking with someone that knows this stuff and has a good broad training, and that's exactly the kind of training I, I always like to talk with someone with that kind of background. So how did you get into weather? Is it some experience or some awakening in, in your youth? Tell us about it. Well, I, I'm not your typical weather geek because I didn't grow up at six years old and wanting to, you know, chase storms at an early age. But uh, I do remember as a child, and this is, you know, California weather, you know, I think about my career and my meteor, meteorology friends and colleagues are like, oh, you have no weather in California. What are you talking about? You know, it's sunny, sunny and dry. And, you know, while we'll get into fire weather later. I remember seeing uh, the fog rolling in over the terrain, the, mount, the hills and watching it evaporate. And you see these um, kind of like these cloud cascades rolling over the terrain. I always thought that was really cool. But it wasn't until I got into geography at Nevada, Reno that I really got into wanting to be a meteorologist. And part of that was because I got into mountaineering and climbing and in the mountains you need to know about the weather. And so I ended up going back and picking up my math and physics and going off to the University of Utah where I studied meteorology. Yeah, I'm just curious. Who'd you study with it at Utah? I know a couple of folks out there, like um, the Jim. Bre um, I'm sorry, um, uh, the snow. <laughs> is the, Jim, the Jim Steenberg. It's Jim Steenberg. I was almost said Jim Bridenstine, the head of NASA, because yeah. I know yeah. him too. But Jim Steenberg and yeah, a few others out there. I know I, I had a student do, do his master's out there as well. 
Oh, it's a great program. I studied with John Horrell and uh, worked with Jim a little bit. He uh, guided me on a lot of stuff and um, Steven Kruger. Okay, very nice. And very then good. my master's was with Dave Whiteman, who was at the Pacific Northwest National Lab where I did intern. And so I did mountain meteorology with Dave and John and Jim. And then uh, Dave eventually retired from PNNL and then went to Utah. And so, and then he just recently retired, I think last year. So. Yeah, I think I, I, I think I heard something about that. Well, I was going to ask if you were doing fire, because you, you talked about, about your transition to meteorology. And I was curious about how you really got interested in fires, because we're going to talk all about the West going on. But I, I like to probe the guests to kind of get some context from where they're coming from. So how did you end up being the fire guy? <laughs> totally by accident. Um, I uh, started a... I got into mountain meteorology and then I started a PhD at the University of British Columbia and uh, I ended up leaving there and going to Houston and I'm from the West Coast. I'd never been to the South or the Gulf Coast, so I didn't really understand humidity. And uh, <laughs> it was quite the change. Well, we do in Georgia and Florida. So. I know, I know. And so uh, it was just a total shock. But um, for my PhD there, I was in charge of building a, a research site, a field site. So putting up a tower, getting a, like a radar wind profiler and stuff all put together. And so that was great. But my research was actually in uh, California. I was looking at thermally driven winds in the Sierra Nevada and Yosemite. Because my undergrad project that I did was in um, Yosemite, where I launched pilot balloons and uh, borrowed a tether sun and studied some winds in the eastern Sierra. So that kind of got me into that. So at the University of Houston, we built this micromet tower and they did a prescribed fire the first year that it was installed. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. And it was a side project to my PhD. And I presented that work at a fire conference, a fire meteorology conference, and people were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like nobody's ever done this before. And I came back and I said, I'm changing my topic. Halfway through my PhD, I said, this is it. You know, I did a lip search and like nobody had collected in situ micromet data in a fire. And so then we did the Fireflux experiment, which is where we ran a head fire, which is a fire that's burning with the wind versus like a backing fire, which is typical prescribed fire technique. And those data became an international standard for uh, bench testing uh, models for fire spread. So that's how this all happened. That, that is so awesome. I think there's a real lesson in that in terms of how you can sort of change course, course correction in, in your research or in your interest. And so I, I, I think that's a really good example of that. Now I want to kind of pivot right into the fires and my, my producers have provided me with some quick facts here to just kind of get the conversation going. As of this recording for 2020, both California and Colorado have set new records for their largest wildfires in state history. California has seen more than 4.1 million acres consumed another record for the state. Even in Oregon and Washington, we've seen devastation. Uh, we've seen more than 8.5 million acres burn nationally. This is crazy. And unfortunately, there have been 45 or so deaths as well. So these are staggering numbers. I remember watching 60 Minutes recently, and I saw a fire, uh, a fire administrator of some type saying that, you know, you they have these once in a career fires. But he was saying how his fire people are them all of the time now, or essentially, or more than once. So set the stage for us in terms of what is going on. Kind of give us the quick, we'll, we'll dive deeper here, but why, are, why, are, why is the fire season so bad this year? Well, it's, it's, it's really complicated. And this is the thing about wildfire science and fire meteorology. It's very interdisciplinary because you have to think about 
not only the fuels and the weather, but also topography and uh, the human aspect. And so this 4.1 million acres is unprecedented, except for if you talk to fire ecologists that point back to the early 1900s, where that was the amount of acres burned annually. So, but because of fire suppression, we've uh, reduced that number. So we haven't had a lot of large fires. So we cannot uh, deny climate change, fingerprint on all of this with drought and warming temperatures, increasing the, the, the dryness of the fuels. But we had a period where there was more burning in the West before fire, active fire suppression. Okay, with that said, let's even think about this lightning siege that we had in August. That was really, um, people say, oh, we never had this as climate change. Well, actually in 2008, we had just as many ignitions in June, but because those ignitions happened earlier in the season, we didn't have the epic fires that we saw in August, where we typically have some of the driest fuels. Um, so I guess this season, if we took away those uh, uh, lightning ignitions, we might still be at 2 million acres or we might be still pretty high, uh, like maybe down in the, the 2017 uh, average acreage that burned that year. But let's look back to 2019, last year, right? It was just last year. We didn't have, we had, well, I think it was 250,000 or uh, 500,000 acres total across the state at this time. And a year ago this week, we had the Kincaid fire, which was the largest fire of the season. Right. Uh, so, the reason that 2019 really was a, a sleeper, let's say, is because the fuel that we had a wet winter and we had some late precipitation and that affects the fuel moisture. And so this fuel moisture issue is a big question in the science. And so that, that really plays into it. Climate change is drying out the fuels, so the fuels are getting drier and drier. And then we have this fuel loading all around the West. We have beetle kill, which is uh, where Beetles are impacting uh, trees, pine trees, in the mid-elevation forests, and those trees then become super dry. They go through gray a red phase where the, the foliage is still on the tree, and then they drop that foliage, it falls to the ground, and then they become like sticks. And then they eventually break off. If you drive through the Sierras right now, you'll see a lot of gray toothpicks that come up in the forest, and they're broken off at the top because of wind. And so then you have this fuel loading. So then it's just a combination. And then if you had the hot, dry, windy weather, boom, it's, it's the perfect, uh, perfect storm, let's say. It, it's amazing that you talk, and we're talking with Dr. Craig Clemens from San Jose State University in the Fire Weather Research Lab. And, you know, I was on a, a National Academy's report on attribution a couple of years ago, and uh, uh, Phil Mode and some others were on that mm -hmm. as well, who I'm sure you know. And we were a little hesitant to make some, some very sort of, conclusive statements about climate change and fires for the very reason that you mentioned. We we certainly know it's playing a role, but as you noted, there's so many other things. That, and I think this, this is one of those science topics that gets somewhat politicized in the sense that we know that there's a climate change impact, but we also know that there are fire management issues. And I think uh, people on both sides of the agenda will often inflate the, the statements there. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that we have, and this is what we bring you on Weather Geeks, an expert, someone who actually studies wildfires to clarify things. So I want to, before we really dig a little bit deeper, I, I, I want to kind of, kind of circle back to your trajectory 
and talk about how you got established at San Jose State and the Fire Weather Lab. Because, I mean, again, you've told us a little bit about how you got into fires, but how did this Fire Weather Lab come to be and how is it situated within your overall program there at San Jose State? Yeah, well, so I was a, I grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And when I was at Houston, I thought, well, gosh, you know, how to, where do I go now? I'm finishing my PhD and fire weather. There's not a, there's no one in academia doing fire weather. And I'm sure that someone in California is going to want to do this. And, uh, that was on my CV it was like, I do fire weather and this is my project. And I ended up landing a faculty job at San Jose state. And the funny thing is, is my undergraduate advisor and geography said to me that you need to go to San Jose state for your bachelor's. You need to go to San Jose state. And it wasn't until a decade later that I ended up here. So I, I arrived right out of my PhD and um, started a very small program with just getting little grants here and there and then building it up and then um, established the Fire Weather Research Lab. Kind of, you know, it was always there since 2007, but we didn't really like brand it with like t-shirts, hats and websites until <laughs> like, <laughs> until uh, I think was it 2014 or so. But um it's been there since 2007. All my research is in fire weather, uh, and we have a number of different projects. Um, so what happened this year is we ended up, I requested to the president's office, like, hey, let's build a center. And that was granted, and I got five tenure track positions. Wow. It's the largest wildfire cluster hire ever. And uh, we had four arrive, start their uh, tenure track positions this fall. Wow. And the fifth person arrives in January. And so we hired a wildfire modeler, uh, a coupled fire atmosphere modeler, uh, uh, Dr. Adam Kochansky. We hired a fire ecologist who specialized in chaparral ecosystems and the Sierras, uh, Dr. Kate Wilkin, a wildfire policy and management, Dr. Amanda Stasowicz, an environmental studies in our department, and uh, Kate Wilkins in biology. And then uh, Dr. Ali Tohidi in mechanical engineering, who does combustion and fire spread and firebrand physics and those kinds of things. So we're, uh, and then the, the fifth person is uh, arriving in January who does wildfire remote sensing using airborne platforms. So not only just like the, 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 the geeky physics of fire spread and fire behavior modeling and weather, it's also the uh, policy aspect and the ecology. So it's really interdisciplinary. And so now we have the Wildfire Interdisciplinary Research Center for work. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Dr. Craig Clemens, uh, San Jose State University's director of the Fire Weather Research Lab. And you just heard about an exciting center. This is really fascinating because one of the questions I actually was going to ask, and you kind of set it up through some of your colleagues, uh, yeah, when we're talking about these large fires that you're dealing with, first of all, I, I'm kind of curious. Do you guys, you know, you know the weather world, arm chasers. Are you guys fire chasers? Do you, just, do you literally call yourself fire chasers? We don't, but we are. And there's been a number of articles written about us as fire chasers because we have the only mobile radar in the Western U.S. And it's a KA band dual pole that we take to wildfires. And then we also take our uh, Doppler LiDAR and second truck. So we take two vehicles to wildfires. 
Another unique aspect is we're the only meteorological team that's listed as a national resource. So we're listed in ROS, which is the resource ordering status system. So firefighters get requested through ROS and incident command team sets that whole thing up. So we're uh, sponsored by the uh, Tahoe National Forest. So we have to do a pack test every year. So it's, you know, firefighter like training and we go through all the training every year. So all my students are fireline qualified. So then we can go to an incident. Uh, generally though, we... <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Don't get assigned to incidents because it's a long process. And when we're more scientifically, we're really, excited, we're really interested in what happens right after ignition. And that's these wind-driven events, you know, you got eight hours, maybe six hours. You think about the campfire, which we deployed to, but of course we were there on day one, but we weren't there right at ignition, right? So you want to capture those observations and that's what we do. So yeah, we're kind of fire chasers, but, uh, and we do a storm chasing, we kind of take that uh, protocol where we you know plan where we're going to go we think about this fire this incident we're ready for an incident you know it's kind of like it's gonna be hot dry and windy tomorrow Ugh, is there going to be a fire or is there a fire burning where these conditions will then exacerbate the fire conditions so would it be a good thing to study so yeah we've been to about 40 deployed our uh, assets to about 40 wildfires in california could you talk about, you mentioned the campfire and some of the others, could you talk about sort of, and again, your background is meteorology like mine, but a lot of our listeners are familiar with observations. I think you mentioned in situ data, you mentioned remote sensing, whether that's airborne or satellite, uh, and you mentioned models, and you're actually even, you hired a modeler. Could you talk about how observations and models work together in your work, either from a research standpoint or even perhaps for predictive um, capabilities? Yeah, so one thing that's interesting, so as meteorologists, we know that radio songs and, and upper air soundings are pretty critical for our daily weather um, observations. We have that national network, but if we look at the Western US, we don't have a lot of, um, you know, it's, we got a lot of mountain valleys. And so we have micro climates in these valleys. And so if you get a fire burning in these remote areas, we don't have a lot of observations. So that's really the angle I took when I got to San Jose State. And so we built the CSU maps, the California State University Mobile Atmospheric Profiling System. And so it's got a Doppler LiDAR microwave profiler mounted to the bed of a truck with helium cylinders, and we, we take that to fires. And then two years ago, we got the radar. So um, what we generally like to do is we want to get radiosons launched on fires. And from that work, I uh, demoed some radius on systems to the uh, National Fire Weather Program Manager. Mm -hmm. And the Incident Meteorologist Program adopted, they, I think they have 50 to 100 portable radius on systems now. And this has been going on for about 10 years. I think it was 2009 that I did that demo. So now incident meteorologists have radius on at their disposal. Because as you know, things have gotten really smaller and cheaper, and it's, uh, it's a little bit more affordable to launch radius on. And so... And once I demoed that, that became kind of the national practice, which is great. 
So when we go to the fires, I usually call the IMET and say, hey, who's the IMET on this fire? We'd like to go up there. And the IMET usually, oh, cool, come on up and yeah, do some radio songs for me because they're busy forecasting. So we might do some wind profiling with the LIDAR. We can scan the plume with the LIDAR. And uh, then we might launch some radio songs. And what on a fire incident, it's not so easy because there is suppression aircraft. So we have to like tie in with the incident command team and the IMET to say, hey, yeah, you can put a balloon up now. And so they've actually cleared airspace for us on incidents to uh, launch a weather balloon. So those data are how, you know, usually we don't have a lot of communications. We don't have satellite comms on the truck yet. And so we just text or tweet the sounding, you know, so that way the IMET can get to it or we, we send it, we just take a snapshot and send it to them through, through a cell phone. And they're like, okay, great, thanks. Because they want to see where the stable air is and such. Uh, the LIDAR data, sometimes we take pictures of the wind profile. The radar data, sometimes we take pictures of that. But um, so that's kind of the, where we provide operational data. It's not as integrated as we hoped. Uh, you know, we've been doing this since this program started. The, we started the RAD Fire program out of my career grant. And we went to, we had like three or four years, and we keep going to wildfires for our own scientific interests. But sometimes it's for support, sometimes it's not. Uh, the first fire that we got requested to was the mountain fire in, out of, um, in Southern California. And we didn't, they said, hey, you can't come. After we were on the road driving to Southern California, the IMET called me up and said, hey, bring your wind profiler down here. This is great. That's when we realized, oh, we have to be in Ross. We have to have all this, all this stuff going on. And so it became this uh, kind of process. Our goal now that we're running uh, operational coupled fire atmosphere model at San Jose State, Wharf S Fire, is to take our field data and be able to ingest that into the model in real time in a form of data assimilation to better uh, tune that model because we don't have upper air soundings across, you know, we don't have a network of profilers, we, we just have surface stations. In California, by the way, because of the utilities, IOUs, investor-owned utilities, They've each put about a thousand weather stations on their uh, infrastructure. So there's 3,000 additional weather stations in the last five years in California with five-minute updates. So it's probably we have more surf, we have the uh, most dense surface network probably in the world in California. Wow. I, so I, people I, don't realize that, right? I know I, I didn't realize that at all. I mean, I, I think about the Oklahoma mesonet and some of the other things out there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought, but yeah, given the complex terrain that you deal with and interesting circumstances, I could see why you would need that kind of resolution. So yeah, so with the uh, with our uh, mobile assets, we go out, we collect them for science, but we're also like sometimes IMET will say, hey, would you mind taking a sounding over here on this other ridge line or on the other side of the fire? Because that'll give us an idea when the when the downslope winds, Diablo winds are going to come, or what have you, and kind of understand the structures. So um, we try to interact with the INS command team as much as possible. Yeah. So you know, this is interesting because as I was listening to you, I was thinking about when I first came to the University of Georgia. Uh, there's actually a U.S. Forest Service Southern Station right on our campus with folks like Scott Goodrick. And yeah, I know Scott well. I'm sure you do. And uh, one of my colleagues, Tom Moat, had had set up something there called Shermsey, which is a southeastern, southern high-resolution modeling center. And um, they, they were trying to do some of these things, but not nearly at the scale that you were trying to do. And one of my for, uh, former PhD students, Dr. Marcus Williams, actually is a scientist there now. He's, you wouldn't know him probably. He's a lot younger. Ooh. 
but awesome. um, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I know Scott, he uh, was a mentor to me as well. And he uh, promoted, yeah, he basically, hey, you really need, to... when I gave that presentation in Canada, I met Scott and he said, you really need to do this. We need to oh, do it. Well, like, that's, that's a small world. Yeah, I know. It is so very small. Meteorology is pretty small. But oh, it is. It is. Fire is really even smaller. And fire is even a smaller component of Now, I want to kind of talk about something that I guess you're involved with. Uh, there's also there's active research uh, with PG&E dealing with uh, establishing a new network of fire and fuel moisture monitoring sites. I think you talked about that and also Pacific Gas and Electric Company. Um, my, my producers put a note in that, that that's ongoing. So it, it's really interesting to hear how much the electric utilities are involved and in not only just sort of worrying about fires, but actually their investments in helping to enable them. So uh, I, I think you talked to that. Let me pivot to uh, something that I, I wanted to get to. Several of the most destructive and deadly wildfires in history have occurred in recent years. And you mentioned the campfire, which I think killed by, by my notes, 85 people or so. Uh, with your colleague, Matt Brewer, you published a study this, this year on that fire um, and the conditions that led to it. Can we kind of get into the sort of nitty gritty and the details of that, what you found in that paper? Yeah, well, Matt Brewer, who is now at UAlbany, um, he came in and did that. Uh, we drove up there, and I we were collecting data, and I said, you know, this is a really good case study. We should really capitalize on this. And he found that uh, he kind of documented the, um, the 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 atmospheric conditions that led to that severe downslope windstorm. And so uh, I had a student previously do her master's thesis on climatology of Diablo winds. And, um, and there's been a lot of work recently, the last two years, people are really getting into the Diablo winds. And Tell us, give us a little 101 for those that may not that may be listening. I, I know what they are, but uh, yeah. the 101 for the Diablos for. Yeah, so it's basically Northern California, Santa Ana. Uh, we traditionally call those North winds. And they've been uh, talked, of, North winds have been talked about since the late 1800s where they were noted in a newspaper article that my student had found and so it, it's it's this wind that acts like a down it's a downslope windstorm and what happens when it when the winds they're northeasterly winds they set up by a pressure gradient a real strong surface pressure gradient along the, the west slope of the sierra nevada the northern sierra nevada and that drives northeasterly winds down the sierra in the opposite direction down the west slope and then those, those winds actually ride up over the Central Valley, the Sacramento Valley, where there's channeling and you get northerly winds down the Central Valley. Those northeasterlies impinge on the coastal topography of the Bay Area, where just this mon uh, Sunday night or Monday, early Monday morning, late Sunday night, uh, winds were gusting to 89 miles an hour in some of those peaks above the wine country ridgeline. Wow. So, you know, you know, think of California, do we have hurricane force winds? Yeah, up in the mountains. And so then you get some, if there's a temperature inversion present, you can get the classic downslope windstorm occurring. It's very localized. It may not happen in San Jose. It may not happen in Oakland, but it will happen up in uh, the Napa region. And so we've diagnosed, we, we basically say there's north winds and then the Diablos are the Bay Area. That's kind of like how we, but now we're just kind of throwing Diablo winds as the generic Think about California real quick. This is kind of a, this is a nice meteorology geeky thing. Oh yeah, we love that on Geek, on Weather Geeks. <laughs> yeah, so how many states have unique wind names? That's I a mean, great point. 
So we have the Santa Anas. Santa Anas, the Diablos. The Diablos, the North Winds, the Mono Winds, which are easterly wind that comes up over the West Slope. That's been documented. Yeah. Uh, and then we also have the Sundowners of Santa Barbara, which is a North Wind event, but because Santa Barbara, that coastline is the only part of the California coastline that's east-west, and the Santa Ynez Mountains are east-west. And so when you have a North Wind impinging on there, you get the downslope flow. Downsloping wind. Yeah. yeah, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think you, you know, the only the closest thing I can think of there. I know there's some wind, uh, regional winds, and some um, complex topography related winds in Europe. There, are the various yeah. wind systems over there. But yeah, I think that's a that's a really. I, th I think um, Craig has really given us a nice weather geek out here, and because I think that's something that perhaps people don't don't think about. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm geeking out with Dr. Craig Clemens about all things fire weather. This is a great show. I, I knew, I told him before we even got on, I said, this is going to be a great show because it's contemporary, it's current, he knows his stuff, and he's, he's a, he said he wasn't born and raised a weather geek, but he's certainly one now, and a fire geek as well. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, I want to kind of, you know, this is not, you know, I, these conversations can go all over the place, and I have notes from the producers, but I, as, as often happens, there are various things that come up in the discussion that aren't on the notes at all, and this is one of them, um, because I've done a lot of work on urban weather and urban climate, and you hear in your world a lot of talk about the urban wildland interface. Mm -hmm. um, how, how big of a problem is that really? Because I, and for what, pe I guess people that may not be familiar, as, as you start getting more urbanization and and homes and residential areas encroaching on this wildland interface uh, when we have these fires that, that creates a, a, an issue. So um, what, what would you say about, about that generally? Yeah, so the WUI, we call it WUI, Wild and Urban Interface. WUI is a problem. And uh, it's not just California. I mean, look at Austin, Texas. They, they have WUI as well. They have uh, you know, scrub oak and dry, dry church, complex terrain, you know, maybe not as severe as the West, Western US, but a lot of places have wooey and uh, California is quite an exception in the fact that it's really a large percentage. And it's not even just like the urban encroachment into the wildlands, it's also rural areas. So a lot of these small towns in the Sierra, they're pretty rural. I mean, they're mountain towns. So you don't, you know, it's hard to say, is that wooey or is that just uh, a bunch of, bunch of homes up in the hills and in the mountains? It's a problem because as you put more people into these forests, then there's, as we know, basically nine out of 10 wildfires are started by humans. And so that gives you more uh, risk for ignition. And so, yeah, people yeah, recreate. So yeah, we recreate there, but we also are living there. Uh, you know, my partner, when we drive to the Sierras to go fly fishing or hiking or whatever, she's like, oh, I love this cat. Let's get a cabin here. I'm like, no, that's good. That, that house is going to burn down. Oh, see the fuel? <laughs> I'm like, look at the fuel loading. That's really, really dangerous. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but okay. 
Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one that has these conversations with my wife, and she's looking. At me, what in the heck are you talking about? I'm not. You're not. I'm not one of your colleagues here. So right. I, 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 I appreciate that. I, it, it brings up a story. I was driving. I was dating my wife, and we were driving to Florida, and I got all excited because there was this blue sky lightning, positive lightning strike out well ahead, and I just stopped the car and went berserk. I was like, "Did you see that? It was positive lightning blue." She's like, what are you talking about? Let's get going, please. So I, I appreciate that. I, I've got like, same thing happened here. We were driving up along the uh, 101 up the California coast. And I like, I started going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I pulled the car off the road in the fast lane on a major freeway. She's yeah. like, what's going on? She thought like I like hit an animal or the car <laughs> broke down. And I got my phone out and I started taking pictures of these beautiful Kelvin Hemholtz waves. Oh, yes. Oh, it was just yeah. like the most, and she... I got in trouble when I got back in. She's like, don't ever do that again. It's like, at least, I'm like, well, didn't you see those clouds? They were amazing. Yeah. So, and by the way, for those that aren't familiar with Kelvin Helmholtz, they're really cool cloud features. They're really a turbulent feature when you've got sheared flow in the atmosphere. You sort of have these breaking wave looking cloud features. I, I would have done exactly the same, but we digress. Let's get back on. <laughs> Sorry. Mentioned, no, I, I love it. We, this is why I love this podcast because, you know, we have a lot more time than we, and by the way, you mentioned, I wanted to mention something earlier. You, you kept referring the IMATSEs incident meteorologists. Shout out to all the IMATS out there because when we did the TV version of this show, we actually had some IMATS on that show. So I'm very familiar with them. So I just wanted to give a shout out and a big thanks to all of them out there because they're a big part of uh, what you may not know about that's going on in these fire incidents here. Yeah, now you, I want to kind of I want to touch on something that you kind of brought up earlier in the discussion about climate change and the and the sort of specter of how it may be impacting things. Now, I want you to put your sort of sort of climatological and meteorological sort of crystal ball out in front of you now. And what 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 are from your your estimation as a scientist, what are you seeing going forward in terms of climate and climate changes and variability and fires? Well, I definitely think that the, the, the recent studies have shown that we're getting more severe fire weather conditions. And when we think about fire weather, okay, so it's kind of boring if you think about severe weather in the, in the rest of the United States, hot, dry, and windy. And so if climate, we're seeing the predictions in climate change in the future that we're going to get warmer. Uh, some studies actually showed that, uh, or one study showed that uh, Santa Ana's might decrease in frequency. Hmm. So that's a good thing, um, but maybe their intensity will increase. So, uh, but the climate change fingerprint is definitely there where fire weather conditions and um, dryness of the atmosphere is really driving these fuels. And so we have to go back to the fire behavior triangle. And so I teach a fire weather course and a general education wildfire course, so I always refer back to the fire behavior triangle. Fuels, topography, and weather. Weather is the most variable. Uh, the fuels are driven by weather, you know, seasonal weather. So if we have drought, we're gonna have a lot of dead, uh, dead shrubs. Uh, if we have a, you know, California is always in drought in summer. Uh, it's kind of unusual that we haven't gotten our rain already this October, but it's very similar 2018 and uh, November where we had the campfire on November 8th, 2018, right? So we're still not out of fire weather season, even though we're getting into you know, the late fall and it's our peak. But in terms of climate change, what, what's shown is that earlier onset of spring because of warming, earlier snow melt. So we don't have the, the, the uh, moisture and the soil moisture is decreasing, getting drier through the summer. 
we are having our normal fall rains. Usually we have a, a cold front come through that will maybe drop a half an inch or something pretty moderate, but that does subside some of the fire risk. And so, yeah, it's definitely there. What we can see in, this, in the future, well, we have a lot of fuel loading. And if we continue, continuously dry as we are, then we're gonna have these big fires. Um, we need more fire on the ground. That's one thing that we have to do. And Georgia is one of the leaders in this prescribed fire program in Georgia and Florida. People don't realize how much acreage is burned in, in the Southeast because they have a great fire management or prescribed fire program. California really needs to adopt that. And it's not like agencies aren't trying to do it, but now our, our short, what we call shoulder season, usually they do prescribed fire in November after some rain. Okay, well, it, we're getting there and we can't get any prescribed fires going because all the agencies are taxed out with their crews on active wildfires. So it's becoming a problem. Just even the management is becoming more of a problem because of uh, this seasonal change in our fire season. You know, we used to have a fire season. Now, if you look at the Thomas fire in December in Southern California, 2018, I mean, come on, that's like crazy. Yeah, it's just it's it's very similar in concept. Some of the conversations happening around hurricanes as we as we're taping this, Hurricane Zeta is approaching the coast of Louisiana. But some have said, "What is the concept of a hurricane season when we've had hurricanes now in January and December and so forth?" So it's an interesting sort of analogous conversation. It sounds like in the fire world, I can't let you get out of here without one more geek out because I imagine yeah. you've seen your share of a pyrocumulonimbus clouds in your day, and these are these really fascinating. Uh, cumulonimbus-like clouds that are, I guess, have their origin in the fires themselves. Talk to the listeners about PyroQ or pyrocumulonimbus. Yeah, so we've published a couple of papers. Uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Neil Rowe at the University of Nevada, Reno, has uh, uh, kind of a leader in this field as well. And uh, we've uh, basically, one of the exciting studies that just came out, a student of mine and Neil at David Kingsmill, University of Colorado, and I published a paper in GRL um, describing or, or showing observations from the Wyoming King Air that flew through a pyrocumulonimbus in 2016. And with the aircraft's radar, we were able to measure uh, updraft velocities of 58 meters per second. Wow. Three kilometers above the fire and below cloud height. So this is just one thing that drives these clouds is the heat flux from the fire. If you think about heat flux from the surface of the earth, what do we have? Like, you know, to five, maybe 10 degree difference from the air and the land surface. Well, think about a fire, a uh, thousand to 1500 degrees C. And so you've got a lot of buoyancy. And so you have really strong updrafts. And of course there, there's also some moisture because of the combustion process, but we found that the entrainment of ambient moisture is critical to forming these clouds. Pyrocumulus, I think are benign. I don't, you know, we see a lot of pyrocumulus even on prescribed fires. It's when they get really, really deep and you get a pyrocumulonimbus that's so high in the atmosphere that you can actually generate lightning, uh, potentially uh, precipitation, and maybe that precipitation evaporates. And so now you have uh, maybe a downburst-like structure that's occurring on a fire, which would then push the fire in a completely different direction. So when you get big pyrocumulus, cumulonimbus clouds forming over a wildfire, it's a lookout situation for all firefighters. And like the Creek fire this year, uh, that was quite, ex quite extreme. I actually drove out with the radar 
to study that fire, but because it was just popping a huge pyrocumulonimbus. Um, that had rotation, and I think the initial estimates were EF1, EF0 to EF1. So that, that, was, that was the one where we were talking about tornado genesis. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I think I wrote something in Forbes about this because there are these little fire whirls and fire swirls and fire nados uh, that maybe is perhaps in sort of stretching of vorticity or, or so yep. forth, I guess. But this was more of a sort of a, is, was this more mesocyclonic or, or I mean, I think so. About, it likely was. I mean, if you saw the pictures of that thing, I mean, it looked like a huge thunderstorm, yeah. right? And um, yeah, so I'm sure there, there's a lot of folks that are going to be doing analysis on that. I really wish I got the radar out there, but that was one situation where I turned around because I was alone, it was dark, and that's a very dangerous part of the Sierra Nevada. I mean, very narrow roads. And the one thing that one of our uh, priorities is we never get in the way of first responders and fire suppression. So if we see like active fire suppression on homes, we generally are like, we're out to another location. Right. Um, campfire was, a, was a, a, an example of that where we stayed out of, the, out of the city to make our wind measurements. But um, yeah, so ambient moisture is critical forming these clouds. Uh, they are very extreme. You don't want to fly through them. Uh, there's a story that one of the flight scientists uh, cracked his head open, not really, but hit his head on the on the cabin of the Wyoming King Air when they flew through this pyrocumulonimbus. Uh, they did some in-situ sampling of that cloud just on the fringe of it, and he wasn't wearing his, uh, you know, he had a seatbelt on, but it apparently wasn't tight enough, and as that plane came out of the updraft of 37 meters per second, uh, you know, everything goes up, and so they, they had a quite a harrowing experience flying through that, which we were chatting with them live. My students and I were chatting with them on that uh, during that flight, and it was just like what, what they were saying. Oh, it's pitch black. Oh, this has happened. Oh, it's just so. Yeah, we're hoping to get the aircraft and all the radars, the DAOs and stuff out to uh, study wildfires with the new field campaign in the future. So that's one of the things that we really need. And one last point I'd like to point out is. If we think about hurricanes and tornadoes, we, we basically have the infrastructure to study all that phenomenon. Hurricane hunters, dows, Doppler on wheels. But if you think about wildfire, we, we have a surface network and occasionally additional weather stations that are set up, incident raws, but we don't study sample or study or sample wildfires like we do other meteorological phenomena. And that's kind of our aim is really doing that because I think we need to. And we've seen over the last few years, we got the car fire tornado EF3, uh, the campfire. I mean, we have lots of extreme cases, and it is California's extreme weather. This is our extreme weather. Right. So we need to focus on it, too. Yeah, and I, I, I second that. I actually spoke recently at a National Academy's um, workshop on fires and smoke, and I, I talked to some folks at NCAR, and they echoed your very points, and that we need the infrastructure, research infrastructure for this hazard uh, going forward and now. This is, I mean, I, gosh, I, I, this is one of those podcasts I just hate to end it. We've got to go. But before we do, what's, what, are, what are your social media can, where people can find you and see what you're up to or your websites? Yeah, fireweather.org and at fireweatherlab on okay. Twitter. At fireweatherlab. Well, I've got to go. But before we do, it's time for the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Chanel Stiger, or Steiger, from the National Weather Service, Lake Charles. This is an awesome story. I'm glad we were able to highlight her. We wanted to give her a special shout-out in this week's episode for the 
positive messages she was attaching to the weather balloons that she was launching multiple times a day for the National Weather Service. The radiosons would land in Lake Charles in, in residence yards and they would see these lovely messages Chanel and keep in mind that they had, had been devastated by hurricanes throughout the year. So it was really awesome. I'm glad we were able to highlight her. Thank you for spreading such positivity during the tough hurricane season, Chanel. And if you'd like to be a weather geek uh, of the week or know someone that should be, make sure you follow our social media sites. Craig, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This was awesome. Great. Thanks a lot for having me, Marshall. It was great to chat with you. Absolutely. Doctor, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll catch you next time on Weather Geeks.